And good evening and welcome to the show. You're on the road to recovery and I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud. And so happy you could join us and be part of what we got going on here. We got so many things to talk about. Uh, just uh, hope you can keep up. I'm going to try to keep up, but fortunately I got a good team of people behind me. We got Chris and uh, Natasha in the studio and some other people helping out in the background. So a lot of people keep me on this track of on the road to recovery. I should probably say that, right? It's the name of the show. Um, but literally, we're literally talking about things that um, we think are important. We're, we're trying to share information. Not all of it is ugly, but some of it is. Um, and we deal with stuff that, uh, you know, in a little deeper detail, uh, looking behind perhaps the people that are involved in some of the reports and news articles and such that you hear about, read about, and listen to. Um, but, you know, the one that I'm talking about right now is kind of cute. It's a, a great start for us. Um, and, you know, it's really talking about kids. Like, and, and, I, and I love starting to talk, to sh- you know, the show starting to talk about children because it always brings a smile to my face. Um, I love being around them. I like hearing them. Uh, I like watching them get ready for school. I like all of it, right? So fortunately, I can do that as a grandparent now. So uh, it's fun because I can send them back home. But uh, loved it as a father. Um, but it's interesting when a school board actually looks at your children in a way that makes you look up and go, whoa, they're actually paying attention. So inside a bustling kindergarten classroom, a school called St. Robert Catholic School, Some of the tiniest students, the smallest students are preparing to take a big step in the fall. They're going to in-person learning. So some, now imagine, right? Some of these kids have only learned online for the most part. They're, you know, they're just starting kindergarten. They're, they're maybe their pre-kindergarten class was an online program. Maybe some, some, uh, some uh, play dates of some sorts, hopefully with cohorts in their groups. Remember those cohort groups that we used to have? Uh, I think they were calling them pods at one point kids were going to learn in pods. Anyway, they're back to some kind of normal and the school is helping them get ready. So at one table, you can actually hear children giggling uh, into a mirror, making faces and toothy grins and wide eyes and such. And and they're studying the image of a sunflower, uh, paying attention to the tiny details and they paint their own versions of it. And in the corner, they examine tree bark and pine cones and stuff. They're part of a new program. It's a school program aimed at getting kids ready for September. So it's a summer program aimed at getting kids ready to go to school in September. And mainly for kids, I believe, that aren't um, well adapted to actual in-person learning for the most part. Some students have only learned online. They hadn't set foot in a classroom in a brick and mortar setting, you know, up until now. So according to Kevin Ning, uh, they designed the program to hopefully ease the transition and build success for students, which is, you know, can't beat that, right? It's a good motivation. The social emotional learning that happens in kindergarten, like no kidding. Okay, so don't even get me started in terms of what the school closings and shutdowns and off and on and in person and out of person and at home and online, what that did to kids. Because for the kids that we're talking about, four or five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, four, five, six, uh, three, four, five, six, maybe. Um, we're not going to see the fallout of this for at least the next decade. So guys like me that are in the mental health and addiction and crisis business and such, we're going to be busy for a long time because a lot of these children lost some of the stuff they needed early on in life because of the pandemic and we were in lockdown and you know all the rest of it. 
and, and, and parents and school and, and school officials and, and educators and psychologists and friends that I know that are, that are, have, you know, a real voice out there um, have said, you know, they were trying to explain to the government that this closing, this shutdown was going to have a negative impact. So the flip side of this now is that there's a learning program. Uh, the kindergarten, it's the, the program is called leaps learning, empathy, adapt, adaptability, play and school and social skills program is part of a new summer programming uh, by the board to combat pandemic related loss. As you all know, it's aimed at grades one to five also have a program uh, to help students with literacy and mathematics focus on academics. Kids that have been having a hard time getting back, will have a hard time, excuse me, getting back to in-class learning. So typically elementary schools uh, at the TDSB is offered to students uh, grade six, seven, and eight, uh, summer school that is. But this year, full day programming was developed for younger grades, addressing the learning disruptions in the past two and a half years. Uh, they've included uh, closures and pivots to remote learning and all that kind of stuff. Uh, the interesting thing is that they're running this program, um, there's an online tutoring program as well, uh, for grades uh, one to eight, um, and there's some kind of online tutoring program. So kids, uh, according to Brendan Brown, the board's director, uh, these summer school programs uh, support students by improving their skills in key areas such as hands-on learning, building interpersonal relationships, uh, literacy, numeracy, uh, encouraging and creative learning, and so on. So when I was a kid, <laughs> a long time ago, that's the Fred Flintstone days when you used to pedal your your car to, to work. Uh, but when I was a kid, you went to summer school because you either wanted to make up a credit or, you know, spent too much time in detention and needed to make up uh, classes or you wanted to improve a class if you were that kind of a student that cared enough about what, you know, what their final marks were and they wanted to get into the kind of schools they wanted to get into, they would take summer school classes. And, and I remember taking a few of them because I needed to make some credits, not because I was such a brainiac kid and wanted to get into a different university, but just to pass. Um, they were fun. Like I got to tell you, we had class in the morning till like 1230, one o'clock. And then the afternoon was a blast. You know, we used to have a good time. And I'm sure some of these younger kids that will also lead to the parents saying, hey, you know, what are you doing after this thing? You know, um, and uh, then they can figure out, you know, where they can go for play dates and maybe they go for ice cream together as, as a couple of different families, a couple of moms and or dads, um, you know, stay at home, dads, stay at home moms, whoever's there you know, at the kid you know, with the kids during the class time or when they pick them up, it, it just breeds so much good stuff, right? In so many ways, about 35% of those in the LEAPS uh, program learned remotely last year. So uh, I guess there's a greater percentage that were actually in and out of class as well. So some of them, this was their first experience away from parents, right? Interacting with children and so on. So I, I personally think if it was up to me, but no one's really asking me, I personally think there should be at least a two-week period where younger kids like this, uh, at this age, are entering school maybe for the first time, have a two-week kind of indoctrination program. It's kind of mixed with having fun and playing, and you know maybe having a water pad or you know something to, to play, something outside to keep them cool. But towards the end of the summer, um, you know, if kids are fortunate enough to go to camp of any kind, camps usually end a few weeks before the end of the summer before school starts be nice to fill that gap with, you know, an indoctrination program for kids that, you know, haven't been to school in person uh, and might miss their moms. So better they get all that stuff out of the way early before the real learning starts, so to speak. Um, and uh, yeah, big thumbs up for that. 
Brendan Brown, the board's director of education, said in an email, these summer programs support students by improving their skills in key areas, such as hands-on learning, building interpersonal skills, and so on. Um, the mother, Claire Goetra, says Leaps was a blessing for her son, Stephen, he was six, he's six, who has severe anxiety. So when the pandemic hit, limited interaction with others, you know, became more and more difficult. His anxiety about being in public just got worse, right? Um, anyway, she said this thing really helped. And he's now set to begin grade one in person this fall, uh, but he's been doing really well in this transition program. Uh, he missed the first day of summer school. Uh, anyway, he uh, managed to, uh, what's to say here? He's uh, the second day convinced him to go. Well, the first day he hit himself, second day she convinced him to go. Uh, he's attending at um, uh, one of those Catholic schools in Scarborough. Uh, but they, by the week's end, his, he was excited to go. And he was, you know, very little coaxing was required to, let, to get him out, out of the door. <clears throat> and now the kid really likes it, right? So Leaps is the brainchild of Brenda Civilano Pena. Uh, an early years resource teacher at the TCDSB. She created the program because she knew children who had only attended kindergarten online would face a huge struggle adapting to in-person learning, which is more structured, of course, right? The goal is for them to feel that they belong to a school community and they've entered a school building. And what's being, what does school look like? What's being in the classroom look like? Like, I mean, think about it, right? It's for a little person or for anybody really, that can be a little daunting, right? That first day of school, the new building, all these kids, all these adults, oh my God, people wearing different clothes and them, you know, that this one's wearing this, this one's wearing that. And, and you know, all the kids that are wearing the cool t-shirts with all of the, the local cartoon characters and the latest and greatest from movies. Like it's all that goes through their little heads, even though you think they're little and they don't think about this stuff. They see everything, they hear everything and they're part of everything. So the goal is for them to feel like they belong, as they say, to a community. So to have this work together for them, meeting each other in this very real way, face-to-face -face in a smaller setting, perhaps, in an indoctrination program that leads them that way, um, I think is a great plan. Anyway, when we come back, we've got more stuff to talk about. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud here, 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Hi there, I'm Yona Bud here. You're on the road to recovery. And we really appreciate you listening in and being part of our little family tonight. There's thousands and tens of thousands of you out there. So it's kind of a big family. If we all kind of went for dinner somewhere, I'm not sure. We'd have to make a table that started on Young Street and uh, at one end and maybe finished up north somewhere. That'd be really cool. See if we can get uh, 75, 80,000 people out to do a dinner on the same table. The table would attach itself. Anyway, I digress. It's not really what this subject matter is about. Uh, I just want to get into it, and I'm just not sure how because it's so sensitive, and it makes me sick. Uh, but we got to do it because that's what the producers say, and that's what we're going to do. So Canadian experts say sexual violence in hockey, other sports as well, has existed for decades. Yeah, okay, great, Canadian experts. You need an expert to tell you that? You need an expert to tell you that people dominate other people, and unfortunately... It's more male to female these days, at least in the years I can ever remember. You know, it's the male gymnastic coach dominating the female gymnast or the male hockey coach dominating the male hockey players or the female hockey players in some, in, you know, uh, insensitive, illegal, violent kind of way. 
it's it, it just, it, it, it's ugly. You know, I was talking to my producer here, uh, Chris, and, how, and he and I were talking about this. And I, we were, I was saying, you know, we are talking about how this can be allowed. You know, we're, ta- we're, we're, we're talking about, everyone knows what we're talking about, we're talking about Junior Hockey Canada and the, and the, uh, and the rape uh, allegations, um, uh, terrible situation. Lots of people aren't surprised by four, five, six young hockey players getting drunk up, which they shouldn't, they're below age probably anyway to drink, getting all drunk up and who knows what else meeting a couple of girls in a, in a, in a bar somewhere, taking them back to saying, Oh, we're hockey players. Come on back. We'll give you an autograph and doing horrible things to them. And interesting enough, we're talking about junior hockey. We're talking about a male junior hockey team here in particular, right? That's who the allegations are against. Uh, We're talking about Olympic hockey, I think in Canada, uh, that is is what the situation is talking about. Sports Canada, which is obviously you know, just not some junior league. We're talking about hockey in Canada. So we're talking about kids that are playing, male young boys that are playing in the junior leagues, right? Now, think back. This is where Chris and I were having a chat. Think back at the St. Mike's, St. Michael's College situation where the bunch of boy captured it on video. A bunch of them got charged with sexual assault, many of whom skated away, literally. Didn't make to say that funny, but yeah, literally just were able to get off with a slap on the wrist. Those kids that came from St. Mike's, a lot of those kids from St. Mike's are fabulous hockey players. It's one of the best hockey high schools in Canada. It's like if you go to St. Mike's and you make the St. Mike's hockey team, you're good. chances are if you're really into it, you're good because you have to be good enough to make that team. You're moving up the ladder in hockey Canada. So if you're raised in a mentality where it's okay to do horrible things to one another with a broom, excuse me for being so graphic, the thought of four or five guys on one or two girls seems a whole lot less violent, doesn't it? Some sick, warped, demented way. And here's the real problem. The problem is not necessarily just Hockey Canada and the fact that the government itself knew and did absolutely nothing about it. There was a culture. He know, they knew of the culture and know of the culture in sports, especially male sports, where the teams at junior ages in particular, it's a raw, raw thing for, you know, a boy to go up perhaps and lose his virginity at 16 because he hasn't, you know, he, he hasn't had that opportunity before. And here he is with all his boys away at a, at a hockey something. And, you know, you can do it. You can do it. All that kind of stuff. It's, not, it's just not a healthy place. And, and, and the fathers that, that look at the kids on the, you know, the girls walking across the street and making inappropriate comments about them in front of their children, that's what's behind this, my friends. So blame Hockey Canada and blame all the experts on junior hockey and yeah, they, they should know about it and spending their money, members' money to hush people up and, and to pay people off. Well, thankfully, now there's going to be a Supreme Court justice in place to, uh, to lead a review. Into, into Hockey Canada, like, you know what they're going to find. I know what they're going to find. And guess what? Not going to change a darn thing. It's built into our culture. It's built It's in, in a sick, negative way. Somehow it's okay for a bunch of athletes, Olympic-style, Olympic-quality athletes, big, young, bucking, striking, striking hockey players to use their dominance to overcome some person, some female, some young person, male, female, doesn't matter, some person who probably didn't want to be there 
when it started to get ugly and couldn't get up to leave. And then to cover it up with their own members' money, this is much more widespread than hockey, my friends, and much we, had, we need much more time to talk about it than what we have tonight. But the subject matter itself, the, 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 the dysfunction within our societies that relates to male-female violence and domination has got to stop. Anyway, that's a great place to end. We'll be back here shortly. We've got more stuff to do in the second hour. Thank you so much for joining us. We're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the road to recovery. I'm here, your host, Yona Bud. Thanks for joining us and everyone else that's out there paying attention. Thank you for coming back and being uh, steady listeners and uh, giving us something to do every Saturday night. My wife gets me out of the house, keeps her busy, keeps me busy. So it gives her time. I'm just kidding. We appreciate the fact that we have a chance to share with you all and, um, Stuff we try to share may not necessarily be, you know, the most positive stuff you want to talk about that day, but it's stuff we need to talk about because it's important. And we try to do it with a spin that's a little more enlightening in terms of what's behind the people behind the things, right? When somebody does something, for example, you know, we're talking here about kids drinking. That's our next segment. Talking about kids drinking, we got to understand what's behind it. Not just, you know, the study says kids shouldn't drink. Okay, great. But you got to drill down right behind that a little bit. And what does that really mean? Okay, so here's the segment. We're talking about young people should not drink. Okay, it's, you don't need a big study to say that. We know it's not healthy for them. We know, well, first of all, it's illegal. Uh, depends on how young we're talking about here. Uh, but we know it's not good for them. We know that it, it messes with your mind. So does smoking a joint, cigarette, you know, uh, you know, stimulants for working out. I know some kids that uh, see me in my practice that, have a problem with uh, stimulants to help them bulk up and be bigger, but they're 15. It's not really good for you at 15. It's not really good for you at any age. If you don't do it with a doctor's support, and clearly there's no parent that's allowing a 15 or 16 year old kid to use steroids to bulk up. So a study, the first kind of it's of it's of this such in the world has found that people under the age of 40 risk their health. If they drink more than a few sips of beer or wine per day and recommends that young people do not drink alcohol at all. Good luck with that. So these findings are part of a wider global burden of disease uh, study it's called GBD study, a comprehensive research program that was started in 1990 by the World Bank to assess the disability and mortality on a global scale. So that, you know, there's a whole bunch of people in a the room. They're called actualizers, I think is what they're called. Actuaries, maybe actuaries. Uh, and they figure out how long people will live so that insurance companies and banks and such uh, can determine uh, debt and uh, financing and all that kind of stuff around uh, life lifespan, right? So this and the analysis on alcohol consumption, this particular study, was funded by Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I wonder if it's still called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I think they each have their own now. But this was published in The Lancet in July, on July 14th, so fairly recent, right? It's the first study on alcohol uh, use that breaks down the risks by geographic region, age, sex, and year, right? So it's really looking at a lot of different things. The study reports that young adults between 15 and 39 um, have issues with uh, drinking. Um, and so 15th, they face only health risks, no benefits when drinking alcohol uh, and would more likely drink to excess Um Currently, Canada is ranked 44th in the world for, uh, for alcohol consumption. Um, we're looking at some strategies here. That's trend. So here, people over age 40 with no underlying health problems can consume a small amount of alcohol every day to provide some benefit. 
such as reducing the risk of uh, heart disease, stroke, and diabetes. So Taryn Greider is an assistant professor in psychology at the Department of the University of Toronto. She, she, she says is, she isn't surprised that the GBD found only health risks for young people who drink. Their brains aren't finished developing until they're between 25 and 30 years old. So I'm really not frust- I'm really not surprised, she said. Alcohol is a depressant on the brain. So it's kind of shutting down normal functioning. And my guest this evening is Terry Greeter. And thank you for joining us. How are you, Terry? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I, I This is like, I really want to drill down into this even further, but I don't want to make this about the statistics. It's just the commonsensical stuff about kids drinking or smoking, you know, smoking weed. Uh, I'm sure they have studies coming about that real soon. Um, not that that's going to change anything. So I guess where I'm coming from is from a psychologist's perspective, you're not really looking at heart disease and such, are you? What, what, what's your focus? Yeah, we're definitely looking at the relationship between brain function and kind of cognitive function and mental illness. So like you mentioned, it's not surprising to me that they would recommend no drug intake. And we could even extend this to something like caffeine. Exactly. So the brain's developing until you're between 25 and 30 years old. And there is still some brain development going on after that. So I'm not surprised that they're recommending no drug intake at that time during brain development. So interest, I mean, you know, you, I don't want to get into your youth or my youth, but certainly (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I'm glad to ask you, but if you want to talk about it, but I mean, you had a beer when you were underage, at least one, right? Sure. Of course. Yeah, of course. It's kind of like a rite of passage. So, you know, is this really more about drinking every day or is this just about drinking at all? So I guess that's kind of where, it, you know, maybe you can help us understand uh, the study a little bit better. And then we can talk about the psychological and the psychosocial aspects of it as well. But, you know, like, like nothing at all is that that's like if you have a beer once a week it's going to affect you in this way like what's the what's the matrices here of how they came up with this well i think it's yeah there the recommendation that came out of it was nothing at all um just the idea that also having one drink is probably not realistic (laughs) right so if you (laughs) go to an event you're not just gonna have one drink in a week Right. So I think the recommendation was just completely abstain. Like you said, how realistic is that? And, you know, are kids that you tell them this research, are they going to listen? I don't know. (laughs) But yeah, the the idea is the effects that it is having on the brain and alcohol is a depressant. So it's shutting down the functioning of certain areas of the brain which in the developing brain can have some pretty significant consequences. So I think, you know, saying, oh, okay, no alcohol at all. We're not supposed to be taking that as, you know, don't, don't have one drink, but it, it is don't have one drink, but is one drink going to affect you really yeah, significantly? Exactly. Probably exactly. not. But again, is a person just going to have one drink when they go to say, you know, whatever party they're going to, something along those lines so there might be even like a there should almost be like a disclaimer that says you know if if you if you're the type of person that potentially has issues with you know being you know doing things obsessively like you can't have one of anything right 
Uh, but right. let's get further into this. So I love these studies and I can hear the chuckle in your voice too. So we're on the same page. I love these studies that come up with all these great recommendations. I bet you there's not a parent of a teenager on that board anywhere because, <laughs> because the recommendations are awesome. Now, so what? So right. I tell, you know, we tell kids all the time, don't smoke weed. It's bad for you. And it creates psychoses. And yeah, all they see, I'll see this giggling and laughter and stuffing their face at McDonald's. Um, so what? So where do we go with the information? I guess is the next question. I think with this information, we want to try and use it as best we can, right? So we want to share the information and share the facts that, you know, alcohol and other drugs for sure are going to, you know, have a negative effect on, you know, cognitive functioning, even longevity of life. And, you know, but that's just the recommendations that came out in terms of getting them across to teenagers that are, you know, wanting to just live their life and feeling pretty invincible. That's a whole different can of worms, I think. Interesting. I'll tell you a quick story here. Um, I, I have a, I had a, a patient, uh, a fellow in his mid mid to early seventies, uh, who was diagnosed several years ago with something called wet brain, and I'm sure you understand exactly mm-hmm. what that is, right? So, and, and I was talking to his grandson uh, in the hospital outside his hospital room because uh, he was had some heart issues and so on. And I was talking to his grandson, and he said, you know, like, what does out al- like could alcohol bring on his dementia? And I it, like, is that, is that affecting his, that created his Alzheimer's or abuse of alcohol. And I explained to him, you know, what wet brain was, and he was flabbergasted. He says, if kids understood that there was something called wet brain, that you could actually drink yourself to a level of dementia and dysfunction, um, you know, obviously not at 15, but maybe at 45, if you start at 15, maybe they would be afraid enough. So I guess maybe what I'm trying to get at here with you, and I, if you're just checking in here, I'm talking to uh, uh, Turin Greeter. She is uh, the assistant professor in psychology uh, department at U of T. Um, you know, the, the question now is how do you create those commercials or something on social media that um, shows kids where, you know, the first beer goes, it's kind of like your brain's fried on weed or brain fried on drugs. It, it, it may not have stopped a lot of people, but it was highly effective. Um, the messaging around the results of the, of the, of the research that that's what I'm trying to figure out. How do we, what's the next step? Like what, what so now that you're, you folks at, at, at the U of T, U of T are looking at this, you're understanding it. Turin, what, what are you going to do with the information that you now have? What's the next step for you? Well, we can, with our information that we're getting, I think the next step is developing new treatments because we've used uh... the scare tactics before. Right. We've been using scare tactics for a long time. Like there were some pretty interesting movies that were put out yep, yep. You know, 50 years ago or so that, you yep. know, were, were about, you know, didn't, didn't stop me. Right. Exactly. That's exactly my point. Right? So we're yeah, putting exactly. out all of this scary information about what can happen, but it's still not having the effect of really preventing you know, alcohol and, and other drug use. So what's going to work? And that's the big question. Right? What I really like, as you said, what I really, before we only get a, like half a minute left here, but what I really liked is you're going to look at, at how this adapts or gets adapted to treatment. 
right. that, that I find very exciting. Um, I'd love to have you come back and see where we go from here and maybe six months, see what, what you guys have done and what your crew has done and where you're going with it. But uh, it, it's, it's, you know, the thing is we get all this great information and then, and we know stuff. And for me, like even because of some of the issues I deal with now that I know it, I'm going to be obsessed about it. It's like, right. So we know this stuff and it's just so frustrating because it's not, it's not affecting change and we're losing so many young people to substance use disorder, but you know what? Hats off to you and, and your team and Taryn Greider is who I'm talking to assistant professor of psychology department, at the university of Toronto, talking about the effects of uh, alcohol on kids. And uh, I'm so glad it's interesting enough for people like you to listen to and, and study about. So thanks for being on here with us. When we come back, we've got tons more stuff to do. Um, yeah, uh, just stick with us. We're going to try to inform and educate and maybe entertain just a little bit. We'll be right back here on the Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here with us. Got a bit of a something going on in my throat. I was away with my wife for a little bit. We'll talk about that in the second, second hour. I'm going to save my stories of traveling course on a scooter right now as a disabled guy on a scooter i see the world a whole different way we'll get to that later i don't want to eat up your time right now the time the first hour though is kind of flying by lots of stuff uh, that i know that you've been hearing about listening to but hopefully we're giving you a different slant or perhaps a different angle on uh, the, on the stories that you hear in today's news and hopefully listening to us or watching our partners there on uh, on global news uh, tv as well um hot enough for you right how heat can affect your mental health. So you and I both know, right, that when it's really hot and sticky, right, the air conditioning's not working. You're probably your blankets is a little too blankets are too heavy, uh, and it's just one of those nights where you just can't get comfortable because you got beads of perspiration just dripping from your neck and from the yeah, you right. You're all looking at me out there. I can see. I can see that you're looking at me going, "Wow, how does he know?" Because I'm just like you, by the way. I just have a microphone. That's the only, the only difference. I sweat like you do. And the heat makes me re-agitated. It makes me really irritable. And when you have anxiety disorder, ADD, and OCD anyway, adding that discomfort of not being able to get comfortable is a big deal. My wife says to me all the time, she's the most beautiful human being on the planet inside and out. And she says all the time, I'm freezing. She freezes in the summer and she freezes in the winter because I'm hot all the time. And in the, in the, in the summertime, it's harder to get comfortable. In the wintertime, you can put on more clothes. In the summertime, you can't get naked enough for that heat to be comfortable, right? Certainly I can but I'll tell you what, it also brings on stress that can cause respiratory problems and exhaustion and edema and, of course, heat stroke, right? But there's new research that says not only physical problems we should be concerned about, but according to a Boston University study published uh, earlier this year, it's established an association between ambient summertime temperatures and mental health emergency department visits. So let's look at the correlation. So we're all on the same page, okay? So what they're doing is they're tying together the temperatures, the outside temperatures. So let's say we had, what, a 30, 29, 28 uh, Celsius a day not so long ago here. Uh, what is it today? 27, 28, we're up there. We're, you know, we're getting close to 30. So the ambient heat, let's say, is, let's say we'll call it 26, 27, 28 Celsius. 
how that is attached to and what that line looks like from those days, those actual calendar days, and then looking at emergency room visits in areas within that temperature zone, so to speak. Okay. So that it's reasonable research. It sort of makes sense. It's not the first research to investigate the link, by the way, but it's the most important contribution to showing a body of literature that analyzed the data from a large sampling, right? So um, I'll give you a little bit of an example. It came from Boston University School of Public Health. Uh, they looked at years two to 2010 to 2019, um, and they re re looked at that relationship, right, of, of those, that, those, those uh, temperatures and the types of people and the number of visits, so to speak, in the emergency room. So it's possible that both to measure the overall number of mental health emergency visits to break that down to number of specific disorders, mood disorders, self-harm, schizophrenia, substance abuse, and anxiety disorders. So not only did they look at the visits, but they created a subsection within those visits of specific uh, diagnoses, right? Or people that were suffering with specific diagnoses or, or presenting with symptoms, you know, uh, within a diagnosis such as mood disorder, self-harm, and so on. <clears throat> Although the correlation is clear, it's still a leap to identify a heart, uh, to identify heat, excuse me, as a direct source. So th that makes sense, right? Like let's, let's, so let's look at that. You know, if someone comes in and is more prone to self-harm and it happens to be 29 degrees outside Celsius, right? Then um, it makes, you can draw a correlation that, you know, it's, it's such a hot day, I want to kill myself. No. But if you're already in that place of not uh, feeling comfortable in your own skin, a term that we use here often on this show, right? If you're not comfortable in your own skin, it makes it more difficult to find comfort if you can't breathe because it's so hot outside or you just can't get comfortable. Or I would tie, if I was looking at the correlation, I, I don't know that there's a number, a line that we could draw to it, but I'd like to look at the sleep that those individuals had or had prior to say the last 48 hours of sleep prior to admitting to hospital. Also within the discomfort zone of those horrible hot temperatures, if that's what you're looking at and you find it horrible. Like I say, some people love it, right? So it'd be nice to know because I certainly believe and my colleagues, a lot of them believe, and I see it with the thousands of patients I've worked with over the years, that if you don't eat properly, sleep properly, and get some form of exercise and you got stuff that bugs you anyway, like, for example, my OCD, my ADD, my anxiety disorder, if I don't eat, sleep and work out or have some kind of exercise, one of those dysfunctions, disorders, one of those things I'm diagnosed with is going to kick in without question. So I think we have to look at that, too, not just the heat. Only 5% um, of the people that were there, what's it say here? There was a very large study published last year that looked at the tens of thousands of 16 to 25-year-olds in 10 different countries and found that the vast majority uh, are worried about things like climate change. So it's not just related to the heat, but when it's really awful and hot out and it shouldn't be for that time of year, right? Then I think it's really important to uh, recognize if uh, we're now worried about things like, um, you know, the world burning up and so on also leads to anxiety and thoughts of, of, of self-harm. So we're not really sure now whether it's a function of the heat and how it affects us uh, physically then, and as a result, then mentally, as I said, if you're not able to sleep, you're not comfortable, yet you don't, you don't have much of an appetite. Certainly going to work can be a chore, right? 
So it's as much of a mental issue, perhaps, but I think there's a physical piece here too. And again, looking at our sleep patterns and how we eat and how we, if we've had any kind of exercise or workout uh, uh, that day, some form of exertion, so you can burn off whatever's bugging you inside, not just the fat on the outside that we try to look at, but it burns off all the ugly stuff on the inside too, all that anxiety, all the stuff you're really trying to get away from and just shake off and uh, hard to do it in the shower, but you can certainly do it if you plan to, uh, to do it in a gym. Maybe it's a good place to do that, right? Little, uh, little push-ups in your living room. It doesn't really matter where you go, right? Uh, anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk about a whole bunch more stuff in the second hour. Uh, we've got a guest, I believe, all lined up as well is going to join us. Uh, so please stay tuned. Go to all the things you need to do. Get yourself a drink and have a smoke if that's what you do and stretch your legs and uh, come on back and we're going to do a whole lot more here on the road to recovery. This is your host, Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for connecting with us this evening. And uh, if you're just coming back from a little bit of a break with us, thanks for coming back. And if you're joining us for the first time, you're not sure what you're doing and who you're talking to, you're on the road to recovery. My name is Yona Bud, and I will be your host this evening here at 640 Toronto. And maybe we can help fix someone else who's having a hard time. It's brutal, man. It's in Toronto. It's uh, 28 degrees. Feels like 36. God, that's hot, eh? When my dog, Siggy, my little guy, you hear me talk about him all the time. He's my therapy dog, and he also works with me in, in my practice. He's, you know, seven, six and a half, seven pounds maybe this week because he's had a lot to eat over the weekend. Um he uh, he just looks at me when I say, you know, time to go outside and pee. And he's like, man, really? Can I pee inside? It's so hot. Anyway, he does go. He does his business and so on. But it's sweltering out there, even for the little animals. So uh, do you know where your children are or your loved ones, your elders, especially animals? You want to know where your dogs and cats and critters are? You know, if you've got a chicken that's a, you know, it's a pet, you want to make sure they're okay too? I don't know if anybody actually has chickens as pets. But the heat will definitely impact them, right? So you got to be really careful. Anyway, um, speaking of managing an issue, the Ottawa should fix uh, toxic overdose crisis by giving users safe drugs. That's what advocates are saying. That's what we've been talking about on the show here uh, for months and months and months. And frankly, uh, my entire broadcasting career, um, we, we, we get to this uh, at least once a month, once every couple of months. Uh, people are dying on the street, right? Pretty simple. Uh, people are dying on the street, and as a result of the death uh, and the issues around the deaths, um, we need to come up with solutions that work. And what we've got going on right now isn't working, right? It's just not working. People are, are still dying on the streets, and uh, we have a tainted um, uh, street drug supply. It's affecting pretty much anything you can buy on the street, including marijuana. So if you're going to smoke your weed, please get it at a real store. Even though you might have to pay a little bit more, it's pretty. It's guaranteed to be safe. You're not going to have to worry about it being mixed with anything that's going to hurt you for sure. Anyway, Canada's in the grips of this deepening crisis, and it's caused by toxic drugs. And the federal modeling predicts that it will likely result in thousands. That's right. Thousand more deaths. Thousands of more deaths. Did you get me? Not a thousand. Thousands multiple thousands more deaths this year. Yeah, pay attention. Against the stark backdrop, advocates and people who use drugs are urging the feds to ensure that there's a widespread access to some safe, 
or regulated drug supply. Now, if you, I don't know if you heard the show uh, many months ago. I don't know, three or four or five months ago. Uh, we had a fellow on from um, Vancouver. He was a doctor, a medical doctor, and uh, they were uh, they had a vending machine. Uh, so if you were having a hard time, you know, getting your fix on with an opioid of some sort, um, you know, he was, they were providing, uh, um, I think, uh, hydromorphone um, or Dilaton, I think, Dilaton to uh, provide the patients with, uh, uh, you know, whatever they needed to get sort of high uh, in a with safe supply. So you got, you buy it through the vending machine. Um, and of course you put in your government information and whatever. There's, there's a lot more to that program than we have time to talk about right now. But th- the intent was to provide a safe supply, right? So, you know, how do you, how do you stop people from dying? How do you stop people from, from dying? One, one way, not many others, but one way is to make sure that the drugs they're using aren't killing them. You know, if, if we had a problem with Cheerios, and there was a tainted supply of Cheerios, we would deal with the tainted supply of Cheerios, having it withdrawn, having it brought back, having it recalled, whatever companies do with that kind of stuff, right? Well, when you're talking about street supply, there's no calling it back. You know, there's no, hey, okay, everybody out there that's got fentanyl in your drugs, okay, call it back, because it would be everybody, right? And why? We're going to get back to the question of why is there fentanyl in everything? And the answer is it makes for an inexpensive way to cut a small amount of drugs into a larger amount of drugs, hence more profit. At the end of the day, this is all about money. People are dying daily with over, with overdose issues related to a tainted supply of street drugs. That includes cocaine. That includes heroin, if there is anything out there like that anymore. Uh, Street-level OxyContin. Uh, I, we've seen it in methamphetamine. We've seen it in, in marijuana. We've seen it in cocaine. Lots of it we've seen in cocaine. Um, and... You know, I had somebody tell me the other day they were doing some coke that was really smooth and easy and just, but afterwards they felt really shitty. Excuse my language, but you know, what, 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 what was going on there is that they, they weren't getting that creepy, you know, if you've ever done cocaine, that kind of creepy, edgy, you know, uh, racy kind of feeling it was kind of mellow because it was also mixed with fentanyl, which kind of took the edge off. Anyway, make a long story short, unhealthy, very dangerous, and people are dying from it. So without access to a regulated safe supply, the decriminalization alone doesn't pose many opportunities to really stem the tide of overdose. So, you know, we've been looking at decriminalization as a means to, by which to manage the issue, but it's not going to happen, right? So more than 7,500 people have died of overdoses last year alone, according to Public Health Agency of Canada. 7,500 people died from overdoses last year alone. Come on, man. That's like a serious number. We need to be talking to our government officials. You need to be talking to your MPPs. We need to be doing something to make a difference here, to try to deal with it. You know, Canada, uh, you know, the organization is led by people who use the drugs. There needs to be a complete rethink in Canada on having a regulated drug supply. That's just, you know, short-term solutions are needed for sure. Uh, Government, you know, we can do all kinds of things in terms of decriminalization and trying to, you know, safe, safe injection sites and all that kind of stuff to try to, you know, see if we can put a Band-Aid on the, on the problem, but it's not going to fix the wound. Fix the wound is a much deeper problem, a socioeconomical problem, and 
Uh, it's a problem that requires, you know, many more therapists, many more opportunities for therapy, many more programs available to those in need. And oh, by the way, if you live in Ontario, I don't know about the rest of Canada, but you live in Ontario, um, the provincial government using your your medical card, you know, your your I used to call it an OHIP card, but it's not anymore. Um, but you use your medical card, your health card. Uh, you can, um, you know, you can get if you're on a government subsidy program. So, for example, ODSP or any of the ones that deal with people that have mental illness and can't work for whatever disabilities and so on, uh, the government will pay for uh, suboxone and or methadone to help manage your drug issue. But for those that aren't ready to do that and aren't ready to get sort of the next step to healthy, right? And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're not sure how to make that step, give me a call. 877-777-5808. 877-777-5808. I'll be glad to talk to you. I'll give you some ideas and suggestions. Won't cost you anything. I promise you won't get a bill from me for the time we spend on the phone. And um, I'll do what I can to help, right? And if you're looking for some support, Let's get you started, and I can be a good guy to start with if you're interested. And if, you know, I don't know if you know anybody who's ever called, but I do talk to people. I actually talk to everybody who calls me and reach out to them and try to help where I can, right? We, that's what we do during the week. Anyway, uh, Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users <clears throat> um, and the Drug User Liberation Front applied last year for an exemption to run a compassion club, <clears throat> excuse me, which would provide a safe supply of methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin that would be procured through the dark web, rigorously tested and packaged with labels reflecting the contents in each substance. Health Canada has said it intends to reject such a proposal. The main reasons were given, according to uh, uh, the executive director of Van Du, the first being uh, that it would be harmful to the Canadian public for a compassion club to be engaging in this illicit market. Really? At this point, we're worried about the illicit market. See, that's what we keep coming back to. There comes back to opportunities. You know, before marijuana was legal, I'm telling you that there were patients that I sent, okay? I, I would sent down to Queen Street now near the beaches years and years and years ago, talking about 25 years ago, there was compassion clubs, several of them, only a couple in Canada and Toronto in particular, uh, where you could get uh, access to medical marijuana if you had cancer or some terrible debilitating disease or for some mental health diagnosis. And, and you know, there were people providing marijuana illegally, some of them going to jail for it. Uh, but it's what you had to do to help people get well. And that's really the, the thing we need to talk about here what we have to do to help people get well. And if it means creating some legal supply of illegal type drugs for right now to get a handle on it, it's, listen, man, it's no different than, uh, there's no difference than having a, uh, you know, having a, a solution to the COVID problem. Anyway, when we come back from uh, break here, I'm going to tell you about how, how big the issue is according to, uh, to some studies going on because uh, the use of drugs and such is becoming a worldwide problem. We'll be right back. This is Yona Bud. 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. Here we are on the road to recovery. Keep your arms and legs in and don't stick them out the windows. You never know. Didn't your mom and dad tell you that when you were driving in the car? Hey, keep your hands in. I don't know what silly kids would stick their hands out trying to touch the cars next to them, but I did. I thought that was a cool idea. See if I could touch the trucks and the cars next to me. Anyway, got into a trouble for it a lot of the time. Um, so we're, if you don't know where you are, you're on the road to recovery. I'm your host this evening, Yona Bud, and you're listening to 640 Toronto. We're talking about stuff that we think matters enough 
to talk about. And uh, it's kind of mental health, addiction, drug-related stuff. But we'll do anything. We'll talk about anything. People call me during the week, send me messages all the time, as have Billy and Maria. Both have birthdays today. I I promised I would give them a shout-out on today's show. And to my good friend Larry and his mom, Larry's mom, hey, Thanks for listening in and making a difference. And uh, Larry, hope you're doing well and family's good and all that kind of stuff. So here's a study. Uh, Marijuana users are more likely to need emergency care and hospitalization, according to The Hill. So here's the story at a glance. Cannabis users were 22% more likely than those who don't use to land in the emergency room or become hospitalized for any reason, suggesting that use of the drug may be associated with Negative health outcomes. Okay, it's a big stretch. Let's see where we go with this. Bodily injury was the top reason for emergency department visits and hospitalizations among marijuana users while respiratory issues came in second. So, for example, I can tell you about a kid I had a problem with a couple of weeks ago. Parents called me up. The kid was what's called greening out, throwing up uh, blood and had all kinds of excuse, excuse to graphic stuff. If you're reading, I apologize. It's late at night. You shouldn't be eating at 1030 anyway. So I know I sound like my mother. Um, so the, the problem is if you, in, if you inhale enough of, uh, if you smoke enough weed and you got young lungs and young throat, you're going to really make a mess. If you smoke a lot of weed and you're an adult, you're going to really make a mess. It's, it can affect your, your respiratory system, especially, especially if you smoke what are called poppers, and that's marijuana mixed with tobacco in a bong. If you don't know what a bong is, it's a large tubular-looking device. They can cost thousands of dollars for some reason. People think it's a great way to get high. I think it's stupid. It drives the THC or the nicotine together with the THC directly to your brain. It really has a heavy effect on your lungs and your throat, uh, but it apparently gets you higher than a kite. So um, people are ending up with respiratory issues you know, as a result of smoking uh, weed, either the, you know, the wrong kind of weed in the wrong kind of way or whatever. New studies suggest recreational marijuana smokers may be at an increased risk of needing emergency care room compared to those who don't use it. Canadian researchers behind the study published in BMJ Open Respiratory Research compared the health data from nearly 4,800 people who reported using uh, marijuana in the preceding 12 months with data from 10,000 people who don't. So the goal of the study was to examine whether there was a link between marijuana use, respiratory-related hospitalizations, or emergency room visits. So researchers found no strong association, pay attention here, no strong association with marijuana use and respiratory-related hospital visits, but they found overall visits to emergency rooms and hospitalizations for any reason was higher among those that used marijuana. The analysis was adjusted for 31 uh, other confounding factors such as physical and mental health disease, tobacco, alcohol, illicit drug use, and so on. Canadian cannabis users were 22% more likely than those who don't use to land in the emergency room or become hospitalized for any reason. So the research demonstrates the cannabis use in general population is associated with the heightened risk of clinically serious negative outcomes. I don't, again, I, you know, young research, fresh research, interesting research for sure. Uh, unlike tobacco, there is some uncertainty, of course, or the controversy regarding the adverse health impacts of cannabis. Some individuals may perceive that cannabis has some health benefits, and of course, we all that are in treatment know that it does if used properly, certainly the CBD side. 
part that doesn't get you high. Uh, still messes with your lungs, though, if you're smoking it. Uh, our research highlights to those using or considering to use cannabis that this behavior is associated with important negative health events. Okay, so I want to take you somewhere else now. Now I'm going to take you to a UN drug report that shines, um, inf- that shows information around cannabis, cocaine, and methamphetamine trends. Okay, so the report outlined that some 284 million uh, 15 to 64 year olds, 200. This American report, 284. It's a UN report, I guess. So it's. Um, I'm, I'm going to see here. I think the parameters are probably worldwide. Uh, the consequences of synthetic drug news. Okay, yeah, so it's somewhat worldwide. The report outlined that some 284 million 15 to 64 year olds, okay, 15 to 64 year olds, big, 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 uh, big uh, track there to follow, uh, huge gap. Anyway, used drugs in 2020, indicating a 26% increase <clears throat> during the course of a decade. So globally, 11.2 million people were estimated to inject drugs, around half of whom were living with hepatitis C, 1.4 million with HIV, 1.2 million with both globally. This is a global report. Uh, In Africa, Latin America, those under 35 represent most of the people being treated for drug use and disorders. Uh, repercussions of cannabis, legalization of cannabis. I'm just going through the report here for you. Uh, in North America, uh, let me see here, legalized cannabis on a state level, especially new potent products containing elevated levels of high inducing THC. Uh, someone was telling me they bought a, an infused infused marijuana joint or called a blunt wrapped in some uh, fancy paper, not regular uh, rolling papers. Anyway, this thing had 36% THC, 36% THC. Now, when I was a kid smoking weed from wherever you got it from, you know, from Mexico, from Jamaica, from where guys growing it up north and Barry somewhere, you know, whatever, um, you know, the potency was 15%, 14%, 16%. Great weed was 17 18%. Uh, but now it's synthetically produced and infused with other things to make it even get you higher. So in, ad- in, induce- in addition to um, increasing tax revenues, it's also caused a reported surge amongst, uh, we're talking about the legalization of weed here, um, reported surge among people with psychiatric disorders, increased suicides and hospitalizations, while generally reducing possession arrests. So uh, the repercussions of Canadian cannabis legalization is... Uh, on a state level in the U.S. Uh, in particular, uh, that uh, more people are ending up reporting psychiatric psychiatric disorders. By the way, there are more people, more young people in particular, that are um, finding themselves dealing with uh, psychoses as a result of marijuana. So marijuana-induced psychoses, uh, something you know that uh, shouldn't be taken lightly. It's a very serious disorder and can make young kids really sick and can leave some of them in in kind of a, a, a kind of a trance or coma for a long period of time. Cocaine, meth, and opium. In 2020, cocaine, local, global cocaine manufacturing grew 11%. So more, more cocaine being manufactured than the previous year, uh, despite seizures increased to a record of uh, 1,424 tons. Nearly 90% of cocaine seized last year was trafficked via land or sea. Um, reaching regions beyond the regular markets of just North America and Europe. Uh, methamphetamine, or meth as it's called on the street, trafficking can continue to expand geographically with, within 117 countries, 
reporting seizures between 2016 and 2020, or 2020, excuse me, uh, versus, oh, it's the same thing, 2020, versus 84 from 20, 2006 to 2010. So we're seeing the trends. <clears throat> so what we're seeing here, uh, while the global area being used for opium poppy cultivation fell, there's an increase in, in production. And some of that is coming from regions of Africa, which weren't previously known uh, for manufacturing or, or growing poppies, which is uh, part of what fuels the opioid um, production world, right? Most people in drug rehabilitation throughout Africa and South and Central America are primarily being treated for cannabis abuse, while those in Eastern and Southern Eastern Europe and Central Asia more often require help for the misuse of opioids. In the United States and Canada, here you go, right? Overdose deaths predominantly driven by an epidemic of non-medical use fentanyl can be fatal in tiny doses. We all know that. Uh, is commonly used to cut other drugs we talked about before, such as cocaine, continue to break records. Estimates in the U.S. point to more than 107,000 drug overdoses last year alone in the U.S. Well, man, these are big numbers. Like, you're not sitting there going, wow, honey, did you realize that so many people died last year in the United States from you know, opioid overdose? I don't know. This is like, gun and, like guns and gang violence. We keep talking about it. We don't really seem to make any change or affect any change. Anyway, conflict zone magnets, if you will, here. Um, we got more stuff to do. Uh, there's, there's so much more to talk about in this report. But the bottom line is that the world is trending towards more drug use and abuse. The conflict zones, Middle East, Southeast Asia, and so on, are really uh, right up there in terms of uh, having issues with um, uh, the use and abuse of you know drugs and the manufacturing and the trafficking and the crime that goes with that. You know, there's a reported clandestine laboratory in Ukraine have skyrocketed from 17 dismantled in 2019 to 79. You, you know, Ukraine is manufacturing. Um, um, Lab, has laboratories manufacturing methamphetamine, producing methamphetamines. The highest number of dismantled, dis, 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 disassembled labs reported in any given country in 2020. And that's what's going on in the Ukraine. Anyway, we've got a lot more stuff to do here, more stuff to talk about. As soon as we come back from break, are adolescents more vulnerable to cannabis addiction? They might be, but not other mental health risks. Not, 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 not what this report suggests. Anyway, we'll be right back to share that with you. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host here, 640 Toronto. And are you having a good time this Saturday night? I hope you are. hope you're listening to me and you're on your way driving somewhere cool, going out to have some fun. It's hotter than heck out there, though. Sticky, too, right? Real sticky. And I remember when I um, would visit friends in Arizona and they would say to me, it's a dry heat. And, you know, it was 120. And they're right. There's a big difference between 120 wet heat, humid heat, and 120 dry heat. This humid heat, man, it is debilitating. And I feel bad for the those that are out there that are struggling along and maybe are struggling some uh, with some uh, mental issues and some physical issues. We'd like to help you out. That's our mandate here on Road to Recovery. We help you. You help us. We help others together. It's kind of a kumbaya moment, but in a real in a, in the real world. Um, just you know, just trying to get past all this stuff. Right, all these issues in the paper, all these issues in the news, all the stuff going on, and you know problems with kids, kids going back to school soon, and people get losing jobs, finding new jobs. Like there's so much flux, 
I don't know. Certainly is for me. I don't know how you feel about it. Is the world in flux out there? Kind of just kind of not really solid for you. It's kind of a little bit set in jello. Adolescents more, more vulnerable to cannabis addiction, but not other mental health risks, according to this UCLA and King's College London research report. Smart people, right? University of California, UCLA, and King's College in London, both excellent universities. Um, adolescents are over three times more vulnerable to developing a cannabis addiction than adults, but not be at, not be at increased risk of other mental health problems related to the drug, according to that study. The study published today, uh, that was li- early last week, in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, found, I'm sure you have one of those at home, right? Uh, found that adolescents who used cannabis were more likely to have higher levels of um, subclinical depression or anxiety than adults who use cannabis. Nor were they more vul- nor were they more vulnerable than adult users to the associations with psychotic-like symptoms. The findings built on a separate study by the same team, okay, published recently in, in pharmaco- uh, um, psychopharmacology. We talked to it that found adolescents were not more vulnerable to associations between chronic cannabis use and cognitive impairment. See, I find that hard to believe. Being has been a practitioner working with kids for, you know, decades, like four of them already, um, you know, thousands, a couple thousand kids for sure in my practice out of over 3,000 patients, almost close to 3,800 patients now uh, in my lifetime. Um, and work with a lot of kids, right? And I'm finding a lot of kids, especially in the last, I'd say, decade or so, yeah, um, having real issues with the mental health implications of uh, cannabis use disorder or, in fact, had mental health complications prior to uh, developing cannabis use disorder. It's kind of hard to put the heart before the horse. We're not sure about the cart cart before the horse. If um, I tend to use sayings, you know, that may not exist, uh, but you can call me up on it. Just send me a message. Uh, I'll try to do better. But listen, seriously, um, the uh, kids are more psychotic today, I think. Um, Now, I don't know if it's the the quality of the weed in terms of how potent it is. I, I believe that's the case. Um, I also believe that, you know, young brains, young minds uh, are, you know, very pliable. And if they're a little unstable to begin with, it doesn't take much to tip them over the edge the wrong way. Um, And uh, high, you know, high impact THC in the bong, that pipe we talked about, that tubular thing that you suck it right into your brain. You can almost hear it frying it on its way into you, so to speak, right? So I'm not sure. So anyway, let's carry on here. So... um, Here's what they say. There's a lot of concern about how the developing teenage brain might be more vulnerable to the long-term effects of cannabis. Okay, but we did not find evidence to support this general claim. Wow. Listen, I'm not going to argue with research. It just doesn't make sense. Anyway, let's carry on. Cannabis addiction is a real issue that teenagers should be aware of as they appear to be much more vulnerable to it than adolescents, or than adults, excuse me. So in adolescence, you're, you're prone to more um, likely a cannabis use disorder than an adult. But on the other hand, the impact that cannabis use has during adolescence on cognitive performance or on depression and anxiety may be weaker than hypothesized prior. Yeah, God, I don't know. 
Well, let's carry on here. But we also replicated previous work that if someone becomes addicted to cannabis, they, that, that may increase the severity of subclinical mental health symptoms. Given adolescents are also at greater risk of experiencing difficulties with mental health than adults, they should be proactively discouraged from regular cannabis use. So I, I, I'm now starting to understand this, and it's now starting to make sense to me a little bit. Hope it does for you. Bottom line is could, kids shouldn't smoke weed, period, end of story. Uh, is it going to be effective? Are we going to actually make that change, make that difference? I don't know. But, um, yeah, they, so the findings in both papers come from the CAN, C-A-N-N, teen study, funded by the Medical Research Council, which is comparing the effects of regular cannabis use among adolescents and adults, while also comparing uh, to age-matched controls, non-use of cannabis, a completely novel design. So um, it seems like it's, a, it's got some merit. The, 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 the research has some merit. The study involves 274 participants, including 76 adolescents aged 16 to 17, uh, and 16 and 17, who use cannabis one to seven times per week, alongside similar numbers of age 26 to 29 users and teenage and adult control comparison participants. All answered questions about their cannabis use over 12 weeks, responded to the same questionnaire. Uh, the cannabis users in the study on average use it four times per week. The adolescents and adult users were also carefully matched on gender, ethnicity, and type of strength of cannabis used. So the, use, the, research, the, the research says adolescent cannabis users were three and a half times as likely to develop severe cannabis use disorder or addiction than adults, uh, and a finding which is in line with previous evidence uh, research. Uh, but cannabis use disorder is defined clearly, so you all know, by symptoms such as, among other things, cravings. So cannabis use contributing to failures in school or work, heightening tolerance, so it takes you more to get off, right? More to get high. Withdrawal, interpersonal problems caused by or exasperated by cannabis use, and so on. You'll, you'll, if, if the cannabis is smoking you and you're not smoking it, so to speak, it's running your life, you're not running its life, then you know you got a problem. We should be talking about it. Uh, but uh, the research found that neither teenager nor adult cannabis use were more, were more likely to develop depressive or anxiety symptoms than non-users. Only the adolescents that had severe cannabis use disorder had worse mental health symptoms, but the researchers caution that the small sample size for this group limits their confidence in the finding. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we're working at it, right? We're trying to do better and find the research that makes it all happen. Anyway, when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about my trip. Yeah, I went on a trip. It was interesting, a trip post-pandemic. I'm going to share that with you in just a minute. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back. We're almost finished the show for this evening. We had another one lined up for next week. Make sure you join us at 9 o'clock again here at 6.40 next Saturday night. We have Rick from Peterborough. Wants to talk about the effects of marijuana real quick. Rick, thanks for calling. Uh, how you doing, buddy? Oh, not too bad. How are you? I'm not bad, brother. It's hotter than 80s out there. Thank God I got some oh, air going. A lot of humidity today, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hate to be a, I hate to be one of those rich kids at a summer camp right now. But anyway, um, t- tell me, tell me uh, your yeah, story. I, real quick, just, I heard your uh, talk there about uh, how the young kids are being affected uh, by marijuana. It's stronger these days than ever, and I haven't touched it for decades. But there was a time back in '79, uh, and uh, I what ended up was I was on a training course, and we all went out smoked some marijuana, and whatever was in it, I don't know, but I 
was put in a hospital for about three days, oh brought God. back to uh, Toronto and put in front of a psychiatrist, and he diagnosed me as bipolar. And he gave me uh, lithium, he gave me triflopyrazine, and he gave yep, me another yep. one called Kojenki. And when I went to the pharmacy, pharmacy says, I'll not give you Kojenki because you're married, but believing in doctors as I did, I carried on with the triflopyrazine and the lithium. Yep. And it turned out that I was on that triflopyrazine for 35 years until the doctor retired. And then I later found out I was only supposed to be on it six weeks to bring you down from the high of the psychosis. And that was all caused by marijuana. And basically, I was later told that I may never have been uh, bipolar. But it was. So that, uh, yeah, you know, that's uh, I pre- listen, buddy, I do appreciate the call. I, I got to get close to a summary here to shut that shut down the show. But uh, do it. Listen, I do appreciate you calling. And, and, and you know what? I'll, I'll let you know something here real quick um, that we're we're finding now. I'm finding a lot of kids that come back, teenagers that come back from, you know, Cam H or one of these uh, psychi- psychiatric wards and are suddenly diagnosed with bipolar or borderline personality disorder, or this or that or something else, you know, coming off of, you know, a six month trip of smoking tons of high powered, high octane weed, you know, through a bong and whatever. And, you know, and, and, you know, had their own issues to begin with. So I, I'm really reluctant. I tell parents all the time, the only way that you can be, res- you know, respect a psychiatric diagnosis is when the person is clean of any street drugs for sure or any non-prescription medications um, to get a baseline, right? And if that makes you all wiggy and depressed and, 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 and anxious, so be it. But you need a baseline, and the baseline can't be tainted or, or polluted with street drugs. So sorry for your trip, brother. Thank God you don't really have bipolar disorder, but it sounds like you're, you're doing okay anyway. And, uh, and I hope you give us a call again and we'll talk some more. Um, I want to talk quickly though about my, my trip, uh, not because I want to tell you about my trip so much as the experience of what the world seems to be like. We were in several provinces, my wife and I. We went to a, a lovely, uh, lovely, um, celebration. I was there, managed to be in a, in a resort with my dad, my 96 year old dad my my grandchildren you know seven and 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 ten uh my kids my brother my wife uh so it was an incredible experience uh, but i gotta tell you and we were staying in the way this place was set up for this event uh very you know very uh beautiful facility in in prince edward county a lovely place um very you know needless to say i'm sure it was quite expensive for whoever set it all up but um service was okay and certain things weren't available because they didn't have staff to staff it and certain you know activities they couldn't find the right people and there was a tent that had to be assembled for this event and it wasn't until 2:30 in the morning that the tent actually had some lights and it was fin- like the, the 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 quality of I don't know. I hate to say this. The quality of employee that's out there today, right now, right now, today, is not what it used to be. Have you noticed that there's a difference when you go to a restaurant now? Anyway, then we went from Prince Edward County, my wife and I, we went to Quebec for, for just the two of us to, to take care of some things. Uh, we were in, uh, in Quebec. We were in Montreal. We were in, um, in, um, in Laurentians. We were in, um, uh, where were we? We were in, uh, a couple of the mountain areas where, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of action, right? There's, 
Uh, we are near uh, Mont-Tremblant. We are right in the town of Mont-Tremblant. Um, and a lot of places closed early. We went to a breakfast place that didn't open until 1130 uh, to get a cup of coffee. Uh, the, and we asked, you know, how can that breakfast place not open until 1130? And the answer was he couldn't get enough staff. And then my wife and I, you know, there's excellent kosher food in Montreal. And, you know, there, it's a much more, um, uh, it's a much more, um, vibrant community late at night. So, you know, you can go out to eat late at night there. So we did. We went out for dinner and, you know, we know the fellow who owns a fabulous restaurant in Montreal. The food is incredible. If you ever go there, it's called Chioko. Uh, the food is outstanding. Whether you keep kosher or not, the food is just off the hook. Um, and, you know, thank God he's got kids and he's got family members because if he didn't have kids and family members, he wouldn't be in business today. And, you know, people that are trying to come out of this pandemic, you know, I called, you know, to get my teeth cleaned and, and my dentist is, you know, my, to get my teeth cleaned is going to take three weeks longer than normal because, you know, they don't have the same number of hygienists that they used to. People are quitting. My doctor's office closed for a month because his secretary and his nurse have both quit. Not because he's not a nice guy. It's because they're just tired of it all. The world is changing, my friends. This post-pandemic world where we're allowed to go back to work and we don't have to wear a mask and kids are going to school real time and all that cool stuff, which is great. We're getting our our liberties back. But don't kid yourself, man. We've lost something along the way here. And people that are working aren't so happy to be doing so. You'd think they should be, but they're not. A lot of, you know, I was at a, I was at a, place a club that my wife and I belong to my family belongs to where we it's a it's a a country club you know that we belong to as a family um, to play golf and do stuff like that not that I'm don't get me wrong it's quite affordable Um, but you know we went to the pool hang out by the pool with you know a bunch of people and um, there's no pool service to get a drink or a bag of chips or anything because they can't find staff through the week to run back and forth from the main building to the pool area to deliver food to people. And all of the people that are working are teenagers, kids, high school kids. And you know what? Some of them are incredible. They're wonderful. They're way beyond their call of duty. And, and I tell them so. I, I'd like to hire a bunch of them tomorrow if I had a job that, you know, that they could do. But for the most part, you got to be patient out there. You know, we waited in a fine hotel to get get taken to our room almost 45 minutes because they were short staffed. We wanted to my wife wanted to get a massage for my wife. We couldn't because the the massage the the, the fitness area that takes care of that were short staffed. Everywhere you go people are short staffed and the staff that are there are doing the job of two people. They're not happy. It's not a great experience. The retail experience isn't much better. If you've gone to a store recently to go shopping you know, we went shopping in Montreal to buy a few things. There's some stores there that have great sales, you can get, you know, great bargains and so on. And, you know, just to get someone to get you a size for something can be a 20-minute, 20 25-minute exercise. And for the average person, maybe that's not a bad thing. But for somebody with ADD, like me, waiting isn't one of my, my favorite things. It's not something I do very well, right? I, I just... Uh, and lineups, you know, if you, we went to Mont Tremblant to, to get something called a beaver tail. Just as an aside here, listen closely, even if you're on a diet. If you've never had a beaver tail, you need to get one. They are the most delicious 
fried thing. I don't know. We had ours with ice cream and chocolate sauce and whatever. But there are people that have other kinds of toppings. But these things called the beaver tail, I don't know if they sell them in Toronto. I think there's a place actually downtown in downtown Toronto by the waterfront called beaver tail. And if they do, you you, you got to go there. you got to buy one of these things. Uh, and hopefully tomorrow 10,000 people will stand out, be standing outside this guy's place. And you'll say, Yona sent me. Uh, but seriously, so, but waiting, you know, waiting for service, waiting for food service, lineups for, for, for rides and events that, you know, we were seeing people were, you know, twice as long, three times as long, certain events. Uh, in downtown Montreal, the, 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 the area down, down by the waterfront where there's all kinds of, um, vendors and, and, and coffee and, 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 uh, food trucks and a Ferris wheel, all kinds of cool stuff, right? Anyway, next week, we got a whole bunch of other stuff to do. Just be patient out there. Let, you know, if you got service happening your way, just give them a chance. Be nice to everybody. Give peace a chance. Give your friends a hug. Tell the ones you're with that you love them. And like my mother said, you know, spread nice. If you don't can't spread nice, say something nice. Don't say anything at all. We'll see you next week, next Saturday night at 9 p.m. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yonabud, 640 Toronto.